You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to give you as much of the nurture and encouragement as the turtles got back in the 1980s, as Jerry likes to put it. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your appetite to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Mark, where we duck deep into how and why trend following can help investors deal with the different kinds of unknowns, as the late Donald Rumsfeld famously described, or black swans, as they are also known as. Rich, great to be back with you this week. How are things down under? Very good, Niels. Um Fortunately, in Queensland, we, we, we're not in lockdown, but a lot of the other states in, in Australia are at the moment. So we're, we're the odd fish in the, in the pool at the moment, but we're, we're benefiting from uh, being able to get out and about and uh, enjoying life at the moment. So we're taking the most of it. I'm glad to hear that because you do hear all of these stories about how countries, different countries are dealing with this new wave of COVID and, and some of the measures are pretty harsh to say the least. So glad to hear you're not affected right now. We've got a great lineup. We got a couple of questions from Adam and Matthew, as well as some really interesting topics that we want to share today. Before we uh, do that, I just want to run through a brief market wrap, so to speak. As usual, I also want to just uh, acknowledge and, and thank those of you who left the rating and review on iTunes. They mean so much to us, and uh, we are very grateful. And of course, we would like for more of those. So if you could take a few minutes of your time to go and leave a rating and review on iTunes, then that would be fantastic. Now, instead of talking about who said what this Fed Minute Week that we've just been through, I thought I would remind everyone that the month of August can be quite tricky for equity markets and for long-term trends, you could go as far as calling August the trend killer month. What I mean by this is that the period from July 8th to September 3rd has actually killed eight of the stock market's longest and most dramatic trends in the past century. Now, the stats I'm going to give to you now are something that I picked up from external sources, but um, let's see how we go. So August 24th, 1921, there was a major bottom in the Dow. So the downtrend ended on that day. September 3rd, 1929, there was a major top in the Dow Jones. July 8th, 1932, we had another major bottom of a trend in the Dow Jones. August 12th, 1982, here you have, it, it's a relationship between the Dow and the producer price index that at that bottom at that time, as we know, leading to the beginning, perhaps, of this major, major bull market we've been in. August 25th, 1987, that was kind of the pre-crash top we saw in the Dow before Black Monday. August 25th, 1999, 
That was the all-time high in the Dow-slash-gold relationship. September 1st, 2000, major top in the NYSE composite. And July 19th, 2007, was a major top in the Dow Jones composite average. So the 22-day period from August 12th to September 3rd is especially indicative, encompassing six of those eight events. There were two outliers, and they were a month earlier, and those were passed. So in short, we're pretty much in the thick of this cluster. And perhaps the current period may turn out to be more important than usual. So let me explain why I think that might be. You know, you could argue that it is a risky environment that we've ever been in previously because markets are much less diversified than in any point that I can remember. Now, I started my trading career back in the 1980s. And at that time, people got very worried when they saw that Japan at the time was obviously a market leader and had 50% allocation of the MSCI World Index. Today, we can say the same about the US market. In fact, it's gone up. It's almost 66% of the MSCI World Index. So it has the highest weight that it's ever been. And it's the highest weight to any one country that has that we've ever seen in a global equity index. But on top of this, if you look inside what makes up the US stock market, you'll actually see that the tech sector, and perhaps big tech in particular, is a bigger portion of the US equity market than it's ever been. And I'm pretty sure that also includes the late 1990s leading into the tech bubble. So what we've ended up with is a highly concentrated equity market, both globally and within the largest allocation, namely the US, to a single sector. And that just means that equity markets could be or is likely to produce some negative surprises. Because as we know, the only free lunch that we have in finance is diversification. And at the moment, we probably have the least diversification we've seen in many decades. Now, of course, we don't know what will happen. And we as trend followers certainly don't invest based on anything other than factual price moves. So all of this may mean absolutely nothing. But for investors at large, looking at their portfolios as a whole, I think it's something to be mindful of. Rich, that was an observation from me. I want to bring you in here before we dive into some uh, trend-following updates and just to see whether there was anything that has caught your attention since we last spoke in the markets or in the trend-following world, whatever it might be. Yes, well, I, I thought that was a very excellent commentary you just made there. I, I sort of feel the same in that Whilst we might have this S&P 500 index reaching for the heavens now, it's sort of built on this handful of stocks within that sector. And it sort of seems to be symptomatic of how economies, as they get overheated, they start off with a robust economy where the wealth is spread throughout the entire economy. And then as as that economy gets more and more fragile, the wealth sort of resides in fewer and fewer stocks as you get to this more fragile situation. So I'm always sort of looking out with action stations on, thinking that uh, is this the time where we're going to suddenly get this this hiccup in the market? So what I'm seeing at the moment is my trend-following systems, the the equities are sort of slowly been creeping up with the NASDAQ and S&P, but I'm starting to look at some other things happening like the fall in the Aussie dollar, which is catching my attention a bit. Um, It's fairly quiet with my portfolio over here, but 
I am aware of what you say and sort of um, it, it's fairly uncertain times we're creeping into. I mean, you could actually, if we just stay on this topic for a few more seconds, you could actually take it a little bit broader, right? Because it's not really only in something like looking specifically at equities, you see concentration. You see more concentration of wealth in the world than we've ever seen before. I think you may even argue that we see more concentration of power in the world than we've ever seen before. And to your point, even though it might look more peaceful and people are incredibly confident, at, I think at the moment, that's what we see reflected in asset prices. I think it also makes things much more fragile. But we've been disappointed. Those who have tried to shorten the markets uh, have been disappointed many, many times in the last 10 years. So, so we can't really um, get too excited about these things. But I think we have to be mindful of them. And I think, which is obviously something we would always argue, is that we I think we should try and build portfolios that can actually withstand those surprises. And and like Mark discussed last week, I mean, the black swan and the uh, unknown unknowns and, and, and all of that stuff, I mean, they, they probably occur more frequently now than before. So we can't disregard that kind of risk. You know, I see that whilst these events or shocks might be sort of more dispersed in nature, separated by long tracks of volatility suppression, when they do come, they tend to all be interrelated. So we get this massive cascading effect where the events are quite significant in nature. You know, we saw that in 2008. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. This whole economic fabric is very much tied together. And, you know, we've got climate change coming in from one side. We've got a pandemic coming in from another side. It's sort of action stations on all fronts at the moment. And you're wondering how all of these interrelationships will fare and whether there's going to be some sort of little unforeseen event starting in one particular location that just critically cascades across all the, the economic fabric. So time to watch out. It's time to watch out. I think another thing, and again, people who know the podcast, they know we I'm not trying to make any sort of political points per se, but again, another thing that I think you could maybe uh, make a slight kind of mental note about at least is what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment. I mean, if people had asked a month ago how quickly things would happen, I don't think they would have said, yeah, within a week, we've got a change in, in Kabul. They would have said months, right? So it just shows you what happens when things really come as, as a surprise to some extent, even though these are very, very different things, but I think we can see some potential similarities. A little bit what happened last year in the in the equity markets, of course, that was the quickest 30% drop in history. And you would have thought with all the history we've, we've got, we would have seen that. You and I are going to get to those kind of discussions later in today about what we've seen in the past and what we might expect in the future, of course. But I just think these things are interesting. I think we can't ignore them. And um, anyways, let me get to the usual update. And as I mentioned, August, you could say, is a bit of a trend killer. And certainly if I look at uh, our performance the last week, it, it feels that way, where we saw losses expanding a little bit on the last couple of months, kind of difficult environment. Not necessarily for all trend followers. It depends a little bit on how we configure our, our various models with markets we trade and, and timeframes, et cetera, et cetera. But certainly some of the trends that have been firmly in place for a while, they came under pressure this week. 
in our portfolio of 55 markets, pretty much all of them suffered losses this week with energies, equities, grains leading the way. And if you take a look at the market moves for the week, you'll see why. There's been quite a lot of pressure on things like those uh, sectors. Currencies on our end were also slightly down. And the only thing that probably was a small positive was fixed income. And um, people know that trend followers, we are hunters for outliers, which we'll also come and talk about later today. We want the big moves and we probably are looking for moves that most other people won't be capitalizing on. But during these hunts, there will be periods where there is more mean reverting in terms of price. And I think this summer, to some extent, we've seen some of that for sure. And as investors questions the Fed's take on inflation, the resurgence of COVID, and what it means for for business, combined, of course, with all the geopolitical tensions we have and the chaos that we just talked about in Afghanistan, we are certainly seeing a little bit of a halt, to say the least, in some of these trends. Now, on our side, we've been doing this for 47 years, and this is not the first time we've had to deal with these situations, and it certainly won't be the last time. But that is part of the trend-following journey. It can start well for the year, looks great, and then you give back most of your returns for the year and until it starts picking up again. The trend barometer is reflecting a little bit of the same. It's really range-bound at the moment, no clear direction really. It's finished the week at 43, which is a kind of a weakish, uh, not super weak, but weakish reading. But I think what I've noticed is just the fact that it's been stuck in a range between high 30s to mid 40s for quite a while now. So probably confirms this somewhat doldrum we've seen. In terms of our volatility trading, when it comes to that, it was a pretty volatile and rather interesting week mostly around the release of the Fed minutes from that July meeting, which happened midweek, and of course the anticipation of that event. In general, what we saw all week was some very large reactions when it comes to percentage moves in the VIX. Every time we just had a slight weakness in the S&P, especially Wednesday afternoon, the S&P dropped roughly about 1.1%, and finished near the lows. And actually, at the same time, we saw the VIX spike up, going up to 21.57. And that's a gain of more than 20%, despite just a small loss in the S&P. So a lot of uncertainty, it seems. But despite all the, that excitement, our vol strategy actually had a pretty quiet week overall. Small loss, still up for the month of August, but small loss. Now, When it comes to uh, the um, trend-following model, the top traders' trend-following model, where we can go into a little bit more detail, it was also a down week, without a doubt. It's down about 1.78% for the month, up uh, 9.97% for the year. Performance so far this month, classical trend actually pretty much flat down 11 basis points, and the trend-following models with kind of a long bias down 22 basis points. And that's really not where the losses are coming from. The losses this month is really coming from these fast-reacting models in Group 3, where we've been whipped around, to be frank, a few times now, both in the equity side and also in the bond side, which is where they're concentrated. Sector attribution so far this month, I was going to say the top three, but there's only really two sectors that are positive, so it's equities and softs. And the worst sectors, and there we have uh, a, a few more to choose from, but the worst are base metals, energies, and bonds. And if we drill down to the single markets for the month, the SMI, the Swiss Market Index, the German Bund, and 
the Australian Spy makes up the top three. In terms of performance and the bottom three are the DAX, the US 10-year notes, and LED. And then in terms of trading for the week, Monday the program bought a little bit of cocoa and US 10-year notes. Tuesday it closed a short position in gold. And Thursday it uh, bought a bit more cocoa and then it flipped a long copper position into a short. This is for one of the kind of faster moving trend following models. And then Friday was really the busiest day of the week where it went short the DAX, and we'll see how that works out, and that's for one of the sh- fast-reacting models. It got out of lead, it reduced some of its NASDAQ long exposure, and it got out of the last RBOP. And for those of you who follow the quote-unquote riskiness of the uh, of the model, meaning how much can it lose if it gets stopped out on Monday of everything, the number is 11.35%, which is down a bit from 13.63% last week. So stops are a little bit closer to current market prices. Plus, of course, we've been stopped out of a few things this week. That's about it, Rich. Let's jump into the two questions we have, and then we'll go into your side of things with all the great topics you've brought along. So let's go with this one first. This is from Adam. Adam writes, excellent show. I've been a long-time listener. The quality of the topics and conversation continues to remain high. Thanks for your regular content. I have a question regarding the benefits of diversification based on increasing the number of markets. In your opinion, and that of your guests, so that will be you, Rich, today, when do you believe the benefits of diversification can become diversification? That is, you are so diversified that your profits are muted longer term. Of course, as we know, Rich, this is a topic we get asked a lot. It's an important question. People have different opinions, so I'm excited to hear your opinion on this. Yes, so look, I certainly have the opinion that diversification is never enough for trend following. So what I'm saying there is that this particular class of trading method that we apply, trend following, targets a particular return distribution. It's targeting the towers of the distribution of market returns. So in relation to that, um, diversification offers us two significant benefits. Of course, diversification gives us the ability to compile uncorrelated return streams together to achieve better risk-adjusted returns. That's pretty well a standard aspect of diversification, no matter which models you're trading. Greater diversification gives, in general, greater risk-adjusted returns. This is sort of different to concentrated strategies such as value investment strategies or fundamental strategies that concentrate their efforts towards a particular um, focus uh, under diversification. Of course, we we spread that risk out. We achieve these uncorrelated or we bring together uncorrelated return streams and we achieve these these strong risk-adjusted returns. Now, whilst that's common to all trend trading models, in particular, there is another benefit of diversification which other trading models don't necessarily get. And this is in what we're referring to as this hunt for outliers. Under uh, uh, alternative trading models that aren't specifically seeking these outliers, they don't receive this benefit. But we are because outliers, by definition, are unpredictable in nature. They can occur anywhere or everywhere. Um, uh, We can't predict them in advance. So we need to diversify broadly across asset classes, across systems and across timeframes to catch these particular outliers. So 
Um, I personally believe that that is a greater benefit of diversification for classic trend following. And therefore, I'd say when people say, well, is there a point where diversification becomes diversification? I'd say, well, actually, not in our particular models, because diversification is never enough, because the wider we go, the smaller bet sizes we go, the greater our ability to harness the nonlinear capabilities of these outlier events, and therefore diversification for us needs to be this ongoing exercise into lots of different return streams wherever they may exist, provided they're liquid in nature. Yeah. By the way, it's quite a hard word to say diversification <laughs> when you think about it. But anyways, uh, leave that aside. I generally agree with you. And of course, a lot of Nobel Prize winners have also found that it's probably always a marginal benefit of adding markets as long as they're not perfectly correlated to what you have already. So for me, it becomes more of a practical question, right? Is my portfolio big enough to add more markets? I think that you need to think about, Adam. Is the extra complexity that follows with trading other markets, it could be time zone, could be the way you access the markets, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, as you kind of alluded to, Rich, should you add more markets or am I better served with adding more trend-following models? Um, I think that's also something you need to think about. I think a lot of the really large managers, they've probably done both, but we may not always all be in, in that position. So I think to summarize, I think to up to a certain number, I definitely think 100% it's worth adding more markets if you find them to be uncorrelated with what you've got already. I think the question is, is it 50 markets, 100 markets, 150 markets? And I say that because I seem to remember a conversation I had with Harold from Transtrend a little while ago. This was an interview we did back in uh, Miami. So this is probably a few years ago now. And they were known for adding lots of markets in the past. They were doing synthetic uh, markets, i.e. creating them markets from combining other markets and all of that stuff. And I seem, and I don't want to misquote Harold, but I, I pretty much um, remember them, him saying, maybe they found that that was probably a little bit too much and, and they've gone a little bit in the other direction. Um, not necessarily saying they're not very, very diversified. I'm sure they still are. But there could, there could be a point, I think, where you might get to the point where it doesn't help. Anyways, but a good question. I appreciate that, Adam. Now, the next question is from Matthew. Matthew Wright, I'd like to start by thanking you again for the absolutely priceless content that you make, that you take time to put out every week. It's worth more than any degree or certificate available. I appreciate that. Of course, Matthew, well, we appreciate it. I have a couple of questions, if that's okay. Number one, in your experience, and now you have to put your thinking cap on here, Rich. In your experience, has there ever been a year where currency have been the star performing assets out of all of the markets traded. I know you trade current or you look at currency, so you might know this better than me. So let me go on to what um, what Matt is saying. I'm looking at this personally probably more from a short to medium term outlook. I trade the basic system that Andreas Klino outlines in his book, Following the Trend, which uses daily charts. And I think he used like three ATR and Matthew is using something close to, but not exactly the same. From a zoomed out view of currencies slash Forex, it doesn't seem like they ever really get any long-term sustained moves. If there are some longer term trends, often from what I can see, 
they've been negated by more long-term range-bound price action. I'm just really curious if over the past two, three decades, there's ever been a standout year where currencies have been the category that has improved the system's performance. If not, then would it make sense to deploy a shorter-term approach to currencies? No need to change the trend-following system in particular, but just have a shorter-term breakout or lower time frame. And by the way, the other question Matt has was for, for Rob, so I'm going to save that one. So I know you know probably more about this uh, than I do, Rich, so I'm going to give you my answer first, and then you can just add to it and tell me where I'm wrong. So what I would say is that I'm sure there has been some good periods for currencies, but I have to admit also that when I checked our con- the contribution on our side in our trend-following system just for the past 15 years, I will say that the worst sector was actually currencies. But if you go back maybe 30 years, it could be different, of course. So I have a few thoughts of why that may be the case. Now, we've seen definitely a recent lack of trend, and this could be because major economies are much more synchronized than they used to be. In the old days, you could have completely different economic environments between different countries, meaning the US could be in recession and Japan could be in a, in a boom. And therefore, you could argue that currencies, which often reflect these differences, would move or would be able to move more freely. But a lot of economies with G7 coming on stream and G20 and all of that, they've become very, very synchronized in when they have recessions and when they have their boom periods. So I think that could be one reason. The other thing I think is that I think central banks in general have been focusing on quote-unquote stability. And then, of course, if that's if they are successful, that should be also reflected in currencies. Just like we see at the moment in markets like fixed income and equities, there's a hell of a lot of stability or lack of volatility in those. Um, now, this might mean then you have to trade more exotic currencies, um, which could still be more freely moving, but that opens up another kind of worms that you need to consider in terms of the risks. I think, in general, the challenge that you uh, highlight in the currencies is something that we experience more broadly at the moment uh, in terms of trend following as a whole, because I feel that change is something that most authorities and central banks, etc., is against. They like the status quo. And I actually think, in, you know, we know from Kahneman's work that investors don't, you know, don't like change. We also prefer status quo. So I think that there is a lot of forces at the moment that kind of goes against these kind of more divergent periods. But I think this is, at the end of the day, and this is a, becomes now more of a, a sort of a personal view, and that is that this might stay on, but at some point we may lose confidence in what all of these authorities and central banks uh, are doing. So the day, and I have no idea when or if it ever going to happen, but the day we stop or we don't believe in negative interest rates or we don't believe in unlimited debt accumulation and money printing or manipulated inflation numbers or lockdowns or mandatory vaccines or huge inequality between the haves and the haves not, that day I think this all might just change and we will go from these very mean reverting type of markets to a much more divergent and volatile environment 
just like we saw pretty much before the year 2000. Um, it's actually not that long ago we've experienced this. It just seems like we've all forgotten that that is the normal or the norm. We just haven't seen it for 20 years. So those were my thoughts, Rich. I'm very curious to where you're going to tell me I'm I'm hopelessly wrong here. No, no, no Niels, I, I see where you're coming from. I, look, I do spend a lot of my time trading currencies. Look, one of the, the key benefits to me is that when you're trading a currency, you're trading effectively a currency pair. And uh, the relationship between the numerator and the denominator means that unlike, for instance, trading equities where there's a, a slight long bias in the series through the, the way that um, indexes are constructed, etc., with currencies you find that there are equal opportunities trading long and equal opportunities trading short. So, you know, when I look at my, my systems now, I see that I, there's a big opportunity with the Aussie dollar, AUDUSD, at the moment short. That's starting to accelerate beyond the, the benefits I'm receiving from my, my equity indices at the moment. So there's a very good short trade on there. There's, there's other good short trades with the pound USD as well. But, you know, when I look back over history, I, I see some spectacular trending opportunities within the currencies. I particularly remember Euro USD in 2014. We had the most magnificent long short uh, long period of, of short trades where um, that was the predominant contributor to wealth in my portfolio. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we often see this also with the yen pairs as well. But certain economies, when you, you operate them as pairs, such as the AUD, Australian dollar, and the Canadian dollar, because they're similar economies in, by virtue of the fact that they're dominated by resources, when you apply AUD CAD as a, as a, a currency pair, you often find that they are mean reverting in nature as opposed to offering um, these trending opportunities. So you just got to be a bit careful which pairs you're trading, um, making sure that uh, you're, you're trading different economies as opposed to similar economies. If you trade similar economies, mean reversion tends to be the more successful strategy there. But if you're trading different economies, then trend following is a significant opportunity. Mexican peso, some of the exotics, Mexican peso, the Russian ruble, they've offered significant opportunities for me in the past before. And these emerging economies, when you pair them up with, say, the US dollar, there are such significant differences there that their trending opportunities are substantial. And a lot of these emerging economies, you get these magnificent trends, uh, long or short. But just as a final thing, currencies give me the opportunity to start embedding a lot of shorts into my portfolio. And I do like that. I, I like the, the mix of both long and short positions because if, for instance, my entire portfolio is, is, is comprising long positions, I feel less confident when things start changing. And I definitely get what they call these co-integration benefits when I have you know, a, a lot of my positions long and a lot of my positions short. These co-integration benefits actually give me a bit of stability with my risk-adjusted returns. But yeah, a good question, Matthew. Do you think Matthew is right to even consider using a different time frame for just currencies? Yeah, look, I don't even consider, for trend following, I don't consider trading currencies any any lower time frame than the daily time frame. So the daily, the weekly, the monthly even, when we're looking at lookbacks, that's looking at things such as 
a 100-day look back, even up to a 1,000-day look back. That is prime territory for currencies from a trend-following perspective. But um, as you go into the hourly timeframe, the five-minute timeframe, obviously that's where mean reversion has a greater significance and obviously noise plays a much greater significance in those lower timeframes. So that's where um, trend-following is not suited to trading those lower timeframes, particularly for currencies. So but anything out from a you know on the daily time frame out, I think is good. Cool. Now we're going to jump to uh, some of the topics that um, that you had brought to the table, so to speak. So. I'm going to try and um, keep my mouth shut and let you uh, talk and hopefully uh, add a, a, a question or two along the way. But I think the things, just to set the scene, I mean, there are many different topics we would like to discuss. Maybe we'll not get to all of them today. But there were like three things because I think what you do really well, uh, Rich, and, and that's something that I uh, really enjoy in these conversations that is, you explain things, you explain trend following in a slightly different way, maybe. Maybe it's because you're in Australia and we're up here. I don't know. You, you think about them slightly differently or you articulate them slightly differently. And I think that's really useful for broadening the conversation. And, and I think also some of the ways you explain things might even appeal to a broader audience. So... We've already touched on on the word outlier. So I think you want to dig deeper into outlier, what it really means, why it's important, um, and what they look like, et cetera, et cetera. We also want to touch on something called nonlinearity, which is another very important concept uh, to understand the benefit of trend following. And then we want to use a word, and I'll put it in quotation, called pyramiding, because it's not the way pyramiding that you find in Egypt, it's certainly not the pyramiding you find in some of these uh, schemes that, that blows up. So those are the three things that I'm going to let you run with for a while, and we we'll see how we go. All right, Niels, here we go. So one of the things I'd, I'd like to focus on is, is this term outlier and how it should be considered different to a standard trend. So when, for instance, we look at a price chart, and uh, we can see a lot of trends within the, the price data. When I'm referring to the word outlier, I'm referring to an exotic anomaly, something that is so obvious when you're looking at a chart, it can't be any other thing. It's this unusual, large magnitude event, which stands out well beyond what the rest of the price data is telling you. So, when we use the term nonlinearity here, this is what we're referring to. We're referring to the fact that the normal average daily range, which does include trends of, of lots of different types, the nature of the magnitude of those moves is effectively linear in nature. We get one up, one down, one up, maybe another up, another one down, another one up. So within the average daily range, you get a lot of these cycles and Within those cycles, you can see these trends, but they are linear in size in relation to each other. But these outliers are nonlinear. They might comprise these nonlinear directional events that are eight times, 12 times, 20 times the size 
of the average daily range of that market. So when we look at, as trend followers, when we look at our trade distribution of returns, it it's really sort of strikes us because we see that in, for instance, a history of 5,000 trades of our total history, when we look at the trade distribution of returns, we realise that it actually is only 5 to 10% of those trades which are giving us all of our profit. So what that's saying is that 95 or 90% of those trades is what's required to simply keep our heads above water, to survive, to keep flat, to pay for all of the small losses, the whipsaws that we've incurred. We need to sort of um, encompass 90 to 95% of our trades just to keep ourselves flat. But these additional 5 to 10%, they are so significant to our P&L. And when you compare us to alternative methodologies, that is actually what delivers this, this exceptional net wealth over the long term by virtue of the compounding benefits we receive from these nonlinear positive beneficial events. If these events were adverse nonlinear events, obviously that would significantly detract from our long-term wealth ambitions. But because of our asymmetrical trend-following strategies that always cut losses short but are open to any positive outlier event, this positive nonlinear impact on our, our equity is what gives us our compounded benefit and our wealth story. So this nonlinearity, when I look at how I can quantitatively define what is this nonlinearity, I like to, to think of it um, from more a physics angle as opposed to a, a traditional finance angle. So when I say, well, what is it that causes these outliers, these significant material events of 20 times, 30 times, the standard normal linear events we otherwise achieve 90 to 95% of the time? Well, what it is, is these, what we refer to in these complex systems called these financial markets, these complex adaptive systems, <clears throat> they are positive feedback impacts that occur under certain scenarios when we get to extreme situations towards the tail of the distribution of returns. So under the normal everyday market operations, there are a multitude of different participants all doing their different thing. Some might be mean reverting, some might be trend following, some might be momentum, some might be value investors, some might be investors, some might be hedges. This plethora of different trading styles within the bulk of the, the normal market activity creates this effect of linearity. Everything's sort of achieving a small slice out of the market, small bit of arbitrage, small bit of arbitrage. There's none of this non-linearity going on within this complex environment during the normal market regime. But when you get um, to these extreme tail events, what we actually start seeing is the, all of the different behaviour in that market starts synchronising. They all start doing the same thing. So people that are being short-squeezed either have to exit their trades and in doing so, they, they have, in exiting their trades, they start taking the direction of a trend follower who will be in this environment predating on this, this chaos that's ensued from these predictive modellers in their, their normal market regime, getting to this exotic zone of the tails where suddenly the thresholds of their models, their predictive models are being exceeded. 
and everything's going down the, the, the tube for them. They're, they're starting to panic and then, you know, perhaps it is this behavioural tendency of fear or greed that starts causing this synchronous behaviour. Now, this synchronous behaviour is this positive feedback loop. So we, we don't need to only think in terms of the individual behaviour of the agents themselves or the participants themselves, but this is where suddenly the impacts of other participants, the neighbours of those agents, start influencing the actions of those agents themselves. So back in the linear area of the environment, there is no feedback relationship going on. But when you start getting into these extreme events, this feedback amplifies this divergent signal we get in these tails, and it creates these price extensions that are significantly beyond the linearity of the normal market regime. In the normal market regime, the different participant behaviours, they're all suppressing the ability of one particular behaviour to dominate in that scenario. It's more an environment of equilibrium where every different participant is doing their own thing and the forces are all balancing off. However, in these tail event environments where everyone starts doing the same thing, the synchronous behaviour starts happening, the positive feedback cycles, and the positive feedback amplifies that price extension and you start getting these things called capitulation tails. So as classic trend followers, when I look at our trade distribution of returns, I say to myself, right, that's where that 5% of trades is significantly adding to my wealth story. Otherwise, it's just a random story of linearity. Now, when I embed this non-linearity into my story, that is what sets me apart from all of these alternative methodologies, these predictive methodologies. And I love that. So this is where I wrote an article. Uh, With that context in mind, I wrote an article saying, we do more than just go for the non-linearity that exists in the market data when we get to these extreme events. We do something called non-linearity squared. And the re- how we do that is, let, let's take an example of a linear return stream. I'll, I'll give you, I'll shout out a few um, examples. So let's say we have um, a return stream that looks like this. Minus one, minus one, plus one, plus one, plus one, minus one, minus one, minus one, minus one. When you sum total that up, that's your a return stream in a more random environment of equilibrium. The total wealth story of that, because it's fairly random up and down, is a total story of minus three. So if I reshuffled that slightly, got a slightly different arrangement of the minus ones, plus ones, the sequences of it, I could get a wealth story of plus five, plus one, minus five. Now, provided we're in that random environment context of equilibrium, we get a fair bit of dispersion between the possible random sequences that 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 can deliver. However, now let's incorporate one of these outliers into the series, which is this feedback event, this positive feedback event. So here's the sequence. Minus one, minus one, plus one, plus one, plus one, minus one, minus one, minus one, plus 20. That singular event in the market data gives us a return stream of plus 17. So we suddenly step out from this range of plus five to minus five to now being in a range of plus 17 from a single event. That's that nonlinearity. 
So now we go one stage further than that with our system diversification because the way we apply our trend-following systems is that we try and avoid the normal market regime, the noise and the mean reversion, by setting these long lookbacks, which basically means our systems are turned off until we get to these more extreme environments. But then when those environments are hit, sequentially, we find with a diversified system approach to an individual market, we might have up to 10, say, for example, different trend-following systems that are triggering under these non-linear regimes of different forms. We could get price extensions in a variety of different forms, from parabolic trends to long-extended trends, a range of different forms. But our systems start getting more and more active, and as we get more and more into this outlier, we're suddenly getting this amplification of non-linearity again because now I'll read you out the return stream of a system, multiple system approach within this same context. We go minus one, minus one, plus one, plus one, plus one, minus one, minus one, minus one, minus one, plus 20, that's when this first system hits this outlier, plus 15, that's another system coming in, targeting an aspect of that outlier, plus 10, that's another system targeting that outlier, plus five. That gives us a return stream of plus 47. So this is where this non-linearity squared comes in. Our systems are deliberately being activated within this non-linear regime. That is what is giving us this significant wealth story and why our systems have this absolute return story to them, which is beyond what alternative methodologies do. We're deliberately capitalising on this positive feedback. So in relation to that, a lot of people say, oh, you're, you're applying lots of different systems there. You're pyramiding into this, um, this trend. We say, well, no, we're not actually pyramiding because if we invest all of our system's effort into one possible trajectory of, that an outlier can take, then we are actually concentrating our strategies rather than diversifying our strategies we're concentrating them to a particular trajectory which we, we assume is going to continue into the future. That once again goes against our principle of trend followers as being price followers, non-predictive in nature. What we do is our different systems are configured for all different possible trajectories that an outlier can take. So some will catch a, an exponential trend, some will catch a long linear trend. They're all configured differently to give us entry diversification into that outlier at different points and we get from their different system design styles we get these co-integration benefits and correlation benefits coming into our trend following models so no we don't pyramid along a single path but we do have multiple systems to attack a broad class of paths but we are doing this to amplify the benefits of the non-linearity we already get in the market data through additional non-linearity applied through more and more systems attacking that outline. So I'm going to let you catch your breath here and, and, and maybe a sip of water because <laughs> I really think it's, a, it's, it's fascinating. It's a great way to describe it. And actually, as you were talking about it, it, it really reminded me that, that a lot of that thinking is what went into designing the uh, the, the, the trend-following model that, that I talk about every week. And this is where it is different from what Jerry and Moritz is doing, where you have the same methodology, but your difference is time or look back. But where 
the um, trend-following model that I have is really different. It's different types of trend-following models, but it also reminded me that 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 what you said about trying to distinguish what is a trend and what is an outlier, the way I think about that is, and the way it it's, it was implemented uh, in in the model is really to say, well, there needs to be kind of a neutral zone, a zone where we don't get engaged because what we really want to do is to try and latch on to some moves that are quote-unquote exceptional, even though we don't know they're going to be exceptional to begin with. So you end up with this kind of mutual zone where there are no signals, so to speak. Now, some people, you could obviously create that through, say, uh, you know, a 100-day uh, breakout model. It, that also has a neutral zone, to, to, of course. But we certainly had a lot of thought about that and, and how we wanted to do it differently, maybe from, from other people. And I think that is really interesting and it's very, very important to understand those nuances when you think about designing trend-following models and why one model might be different to another. So I appreciate that. This is also why, and this is maybe a little bit unfair, because I'm sure there are ways to do that, but this is also why I probably gravitated more towards breakout than moving average crossover, because I felt that there was just too much noise in the moving moving average crossover and not enough to really um, filter out those things that never became an outlier, so to speak. You just too many signals. I'm sure there are fancy ways of 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 getting over that uh, challenge, but but I I think that's why I personally have gravitated more towards breakout because it's just simpler to understand and see that oh yeah we're not going to get engaged until this happens, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. I prefer the cleanliness of breakout, but what I'll do is I will entertain the prospect of other models, provided mm. there is a core balance of breakout models in for a particular market. So, you know, let's say that I trade 10 different trend-following systems for different markets. At least four of those systems, as a core re- prerequisite for me, must be breakout models. The, mm. the balance of six is more to give me entry diversification. Uh, But the core four means that I never miss an outlier. If I was playing around with moving average crossovers or whatever, or retracement entries into trend, yes, I can miss those those outliers. But by having at least a core framework of at least four, uh, which is almost like a golden rule for my, my multiple systems, they must be present. I always know that I will catch an outlier, and then it's a case of but I need diversification of systems to capture different aspects of that outlier and and achieve this amplification. Yeah, no, great point. Now, feel free to go into more if you want, but I know the other thing, and I don't necessarily know that we'll have time to do all three big points. The other point I want to mention is the uh, the fact that there are many paths to uh, quote-unquote uncertainty. So we want to talk about that I think that's another really important aspect to understand because it deals with risk and risk is a critical thing for for investors of of all sorts. And then we might keep that since you actually I have the pleasure of having you back on next week. So we there are lots of time to to discuss other things. But feel free to add more to the first point. Otherwise, if you uh, want, let's dive into uh, the many paths of uncertainty for a while and see how that um, how we go. 
Yes, well, that many paths to uncertainty is a bit of an extension from what you were talking with Mark about in last week's episode. Yeah. It's effectively coming to the the Rumsfold view of the unknown unknowns of uncertainty and the known knowns of certainty. Of course, there are the unknown or the, the known unknowns, but we'll leave them aside for right. the moment. But <laughs> the the way I view these complex adaptive systems is that you you unfortunately, as a participant trading these markets, you don't have the luxury of sitting outside that system like a god looking into that system and being privy to a perfect information about every aspect of that system. That's the theory behind passively sitting outside with this, this supposed knowledge of the entire system. But the reality is, as a participant um, in that system, you look from outside in, or sorry, from inside out. So your knowledge bubble basically extends from yourself and giving a degree of imperfect information or that aspect of the system that you have knowledge about. But there is always that information that exists outside that domain of your knowledge. So that therefore allows me to separate a complex system into two components. It allows me to separate a, a complex system into the domain of the known which relates to a participant's knowledge of that, that complex system, and then the domain of the unknown, which is the, uh, the imperfect or, or the domain that's separated by this, this imperfect information. So with the many paths of uncertainty, what that's reflecting is that a complex adaptive system has a great degree of uncertainty embedded into it. And if we look, for instance, at a historical track record of a complex adaptive system, we get a single path that is represented by that history. And that single path starts from an initial condition, and then we have um, particular events that occur in a particular order to lead us to this particular point we are today. Um, that is a single path, and it, the path is determined by the sequence of the events from that initial state. But the reality is, if we reshuffled those events, we could get a totally different path to where we are today. And, you know, when you look at how the participants in this system achieve their end state where they are now, for instance, let's look at Amazon now. Amazon probably required to be a bookseller first, then it probably required the internet to sell those books then it required a, a, you know, a logistical supply system and an automated supply system to get to where they are today, to get that wide distribution. So there were these sequential steps in that particular path which led to Amazon's story. But if you flip those events around, it wouldn't be Amazon sitting there today. It'd be another. So in these complex adaptive systems, we get this principle called emergence arising in these systems. And just to sort of understand what emergence is, it's, it's these emergent features that arise in a system that act as scaffolds for future events to unfold. And the way to think of that is, you know, um, I, I tend to sort of go to the physics angle here and I say, look, look at a glass of water that contains water molecules. So, you know, when, when we operate as a gas in those water molecules, there is no such thing as water. As a gas, we get these molecules of H2O colliding around, agitating each other, bumping around, it flying off in different directions in a diffuse cloud called a gas. 
But as we cool that gas down, we get a separation or a phase state change where suddenly we get a new property emerging. It's an emergent property called wetness or liquidity that arises by virtue of the interplay between the different ways these H2O molecules are all behaving. So it's not just the individual molecule's behavior itself, it's their context to the system that creates this concept called water. So suddenly we've got this emergent structure where everything now going forward needs to float. So we can get things floating on water as opposed to being related to the individual H2O molecules themselves. So you can see with a complex adaptive system, as the scaffold builds with new emergent structures forming, they actually form as foundational architecture for new different ways these emergent systems can evolve. So this creates this this complexity to this multiplicity of possible paths that, um, you know, this one historical track record we've got, that is one of... a. 11 billion different possible paths that could have got us to this point of today. So a trend follower says, well, the the past represented by this single historic track record is actually the anomaly here. Uh, The greater chance is that the past could have been any of these other possible paths. And the future represents this braided array of possible paths into the future from this point and now. Now, a predictive modeler who looks at this single historic path will assign causality to that historic path. They'll say there was an equilibrium in that past. There was a point that price um, converged to in that past, which is this notion of predictability about this historic path. We say, well, there really, because there is this possible myriad of different other paths, That is one small segment of a greater possible story. We would prefer our systems to therefore be able to embrace any possible path. We would say that our opportunity arises from the fact that we say that, well, your predictive path is one single path. We would bet on a different path and therefore our systems are not going to respect a historic equilibrium. They're not going to respect respect what history has delivered. They're going to take on the attitude that um, our systems must uh, must protect us from any possible adverse path, but leave ourselves open for the benefit of the bounty that any possible path can deliver to our system. So that was what I was getting at with that many paths of uncertainty. I, I hope I expressed that okay. No, I think you do. I think where it leads us, a couple of things that takeaways that I that I find is that. And I think I've mentioned this a couple of times before on the podcast, and that is that people sometimes think of trend followers as uh, you know people focusing on how much money can we make, but actually what we think about all the time is risk. So first and foremost, we are risk managers, right? And as people would also know, it is impossible to predict future returns, but it is easier not necessarily to do it 100%, but it's certainly easier to predict kind of the risks and the volatility that we are dealing with. Drawdowns can be a little bit harder, sort of specific drawdowns, but certainly volatility and and risk is easier to quote-unquote control, and then we just have to let the performance take care of itself. So I think those are some of the things uh, to take away. And I also think the other thing that it really 
drives home when you explain it like that, and that is maybe the true strength in what we do, which is very, very hard to articulate in a um, quote-unquote sophisticated way because it's such an easy concept. And that is, the it's really the process of trend following, cutting our losses, letting our winners run. Those very, very basic, simple concepts, that's where the real power lies. And I remember Richard Dennis, when I had him on a while back uh, with Jerry, actually, I remember him finishing by saying that although the trend is your friend, it's really the rules that are your guardian angel. And it's those rules, simple as they may be, that we sometimes get ridiculed for because people say, no, 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 you, you, can't, you can't make money from doing that. That's just too simple. But no, it is those rules that allows us to navigate a completely uncertain future. It's very, very rare that you see, and I can't really think of anyone, where you see a diversified classical trend-following firm blow up. I just, I mean, okay, you can do it if you take too much leverage, of course. But a classical trend-following approach, I think, can pretty much survive anything, not necessarily thrive, but survive. Unlike a lot of these much more narrow strategies that depend on a quote-unquote certain future, where when they don't get that certainty, they blow up and they blow up big time. So those are some of the things that I think of in addition to the uh, to the chemical lesson you gave us <laughs> with H2O and, and all of that stuff. I guess it also reminds me of uh, the quote from Bruce Lee that we you have to be like water. Yes. And it's kind of uh, what we are as trend followers. We we just flow with uh, whatever the markets are giving us. Any follow-up thoughts, uh, Rich, on that? No, I think you, you nailed it in your closure there, Niels. Um, we are risk managers. And, of course, we, we never have any expectation about how we will go in the future because we can't predict these outliers. But we do know that we can preserve capital. And provided we preserve capital at all costs but leave ourselves open to this possible bounty, I think that's where we do need to leave it in the hands of the market to deliver that to us as opposed to, and that's why we diversify to hunt for these opportunities, but it's more a case of we are in the hands of the market to deliver that to us. We're less like engineers who like um, predictive certainty and we're more like um, risk managers who have a system that is asymmetrically configured, always cut losses short, let those profits run. And I, I personally think that is a, the, the secret to our success. Well, we reeled today the secret source of trend following. <laughs> I don't think anyone would be surprised by what we just said. Anyways, I appreciate that, Rich. Now, in terms of uh, performance updates, slightly down month so far for uh, all of the types of CTA strategies. So the beta 50 index is down 55 or 56 basis points as of Thursday night. I think yesterday could have been a little bit of a down day as well, so it's probably down a little bit more. So it's still up 6.86% for the year. Sokjen CTA index down about a percent, up 5.82% for the year. Trend index down 83 basis points, up about 7% for the year. And the Sokjen short-term traders index down about 27 basis points, up one27 for the year, as I mentioned earlier, trend barometer is uh, finished at 43 week, but range bound, which is causing some challenges over this summer for some trend followers at least. Equities, 
Despite a volatile week, still up MSCI World, up 35 basis points for the month, up 14 and a half for the year, and the World Government Bond Index is up 21 basis points. As I've already alluded to, next week, Rich is back, so uh, we're going to have another super fun and educational conversation. So do make sure you send in your questions uh, so that we have a little bit of time to prepare and I don't have to spring everything on Rich, as I normally do with everyone, by the way. They don't see the question in advance. We want to keep it pretty raw and, and how it um, would happen in a normal conversation. You can, of course, email them to info at toptradersonplug.com. We do our best to bring them on the following episode. That's pretty much it from Rich and me. Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until that time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.